Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Book Review. My name is Nora Ami. Every Man a King by Walter Mosley. The title of Walter Mosley's provocative new novel, Every Man a King, is a motto with a violent history. It has the catchphrase of the firebrand Louisiana populist Huey Long, who might have challenged Franklin Roosevelt from the left in 1936, were he not assassinated first. These words, a cry for equality from a bygone era, are a snug fit for Mosley's novel, which skitters across the spectrum between orthodox and radical, like a polygraph needle wired to a nervy accomplice. The narrative begins with Joe King Oliver, a black ex-cop and private detective in New York, driving uptown to meet a client at a palatial estate overlooking the Hudson River. The client is Roger Ferris, an enormously rich old white guy. Roger is the boyfriend of Joe's feisty grandmother, Brenda, whose parents were sharecroppers. Roger asks Joe to investigate what appears to be a government kidnapping. A man named Alfred Xavier Quiller has been unduly jailed in a secret cell on Rikers Island. Quiller is a noted inventor, a natural-born genius, and a manifesto-penning icon of white nationalism. Jillionaire Roger claims to abhor Quiller's politics, but he intones, the betrayal of our civil rights is a crime worse than any he's being held for. Freedoms betrayed, classes divided, races at war. Such heady themes lace the length of Mosley's 46th novel. Fans of his Easy Rawlings and Leonid McGill series will not be disappointed, for we remain in the realm of deliciously gritty noir. There will be cold cocks and gunfights and stakeouts. There will be tough-talking heavies named Rembert Cormody and D'Artagnan Aramois, formidable femmes called Amethyst Banks and Minka Craft. I was struggling to update my corkboard when I read this exquisitely pulpy line. Lawler was a New York blue blood who married a nouveau riche nobody named Constantine Salmas, a.k.a. the Can Man. Warmth filled my guts like whiskey. I didn't need a map. Mosley was driving me to Rikers in a cream-colored Bianchina, and Mingus was playing on the stereo. I was along for the ride. As readers learned in Down the River Unto the Sea, the 2018 novel in which Joe King Oliver first appeared, Mosley's latest private eye has spent some time on Rikers himself. A decade ago, Joe was the rare clean cop, Framed by corrupt colleagues, he spent torturous months in solitary. When he re-enters the prison in the new book to find Quiller, his trauma is palpable. My left hand was shaking slightly and my feet felt as if they were growing toe roots. The sweating started when the iron door slammed shut. This backstory brings the novel's high-tone themes to life. Joe's experience of wrongful incarceration forms a psychic bond between him and the racist ideologue he's been employed to rescue. As the story unfolds, prison contractors emerge as central antagonists, alongside alt-right militias and Russian oil-trading syndicates. 
Did I mention that Joe's ex-wife's husband, a chiseled Wall Street swindler named Coleman Tesserat, has also been thrown in prison? Joe takes on this second case out of consideration to his brilliant daughter, Aja Denise, Tesserat's stepchild. As the two investigations tangle together, the narrative threads become difficult to follow, but Mosley's Labyrinth leads Joe to a delightful variety of artfully drawn settings. One minute, he's outwitting oligarchs in the Obsidian Club, a gleaming midtown billionaire's lounge. The next, he's bantering with a sex worker in hardscrabble Brownsville, a place where children learn lessons that they spend the rest of their lives trying to forget. All this is classic Mosley, a master of the hard-boiled style that Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett pioneered in the 1930s. The Byzantine plot, the suave private eye, all the uncanny similes. It's a cocktail that skilled authors will serve as long as bartenders are still pouring Negronis. At times, Mosley seems reluctant to part with outmoded aspects of the formula. Quiller's fatal wife has a figure reminiscent of the Playboy Bunny of the late 60s, opulent, impossible. Joe describes a dandy he encounters as what once might have been called an effeminate black man. When Joe gruffly resigns himself to evolving social mores, I wondered whether he was hearing the voice of the 71-year-old author and not the 44-year-old detective. I was old school and by heart I held women to what used to be called a higher standard. But the world had changed, and if I wanted a relationship with the new order, I had to at least be aware of its expectations. Over the course of his prolific career, Mosley has accumulated laurels including an O. Henry Award, a Grammy, and a Lifetime Achievement Medal from the National Book Foundation. In my local bookstore, his novels are shelved in the mystery section. What distinguishes these works from certain crime-centric tomes on the literature shelves, such as Motherless Brooklyn or The Goldfinch? In interviews, Mosley has objected to the label of mystery writer. Chandler, who also bristled at the pigeonholing of his oeuvre, insisted that when a book any sort of book, reaches a certain intensity of artistic performance, it becomes literature. I like this blatantly subjective standard, and my nose tells me that Chandler often met it. As for Every Man a King, it's a sterling example of a genre that it scarcely transcends. Of course, only a snob would always prize artistic performance over wisdom and fun, Mosley is an avid consumer of both poetry and comic books. When it comes to questions of what's mystery and what's literature, what's tired and what's timeless, and what's highbrow or low, he seems to possess all the detachment of a Taoist sage. Trying to set yourself up for the importance and legacy? Who cares, he told the Paris Review. Mosley imbues his memorable protagonist with a corresponding equanimity. When Aja Denise castigates Joe for taking on Quiller's case, he is at once pained by his daughter's judgment and proud of her principles. If someone had asked me at that moment to explain my emotional state, Joe says, I would have said, everything good and everything bad that makes me human. This review was written by Daniel Nee, who is a translator and a novelist. 
His most recent book is Take No Names, Old Babes in the Wood, Stories by Margaret Atwood. There are authors we turn to because they can uncannily predict our future. There are authors we need for their skillful diagnosis of our present. And there are authors we love because they can explain our past. And then there are the outliers, those who gift us with timelines other than the one we're stuck in, realities far from home. If anyone has proved over the course of a long and wildly diverse career that she can be all four, it's Margaret Atwood. We've recently been reminded of her gifts as a futurist. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned last year, The Handmaid's Tale has begun to feel, at least in the United States, less like a story of a bullet dodged than like an eerie foretoken of our not-too-distant fate. Yet Atwood is equally lauded for novels like Cat's Eye and the Booker Prize-winning The Blind Assassin, which sweep us through the 20th century, shedding light on both collective and personal pasts. Her short stories, like her novels, are as likely to be set in the ancient world or in 1930s Toronto as on a post-apocalyptic Earth. If you consider yourself an Atwood fan and have only read her novels, get your act together. You've been missing out. Old Babes in the Wood, the Canadian author's ninth story collection, the first since Stone Mattress in 2014, comprises three sections. Tig and Nell, My Evil Mother, and Nell and Tig. The first and last seven stories in total give us episodes from the marriage of a couple with grown children, taking us more or less chronologically up to Tig's death and Nell's life alone, which she likens to being a student again, the same formless anxiety, the same bare-bones meals. Even before Tig's departure, loss suffuses these stories, the loss of a neighbor, of a beloved cat, of Tig's father. They are stories that look backward. While that perspective isn't new for Atwood, the lens seems to have changed. The characters in Stone Mattress look back in bitterness or bemusement or nostalgia or even revenge. But here, people look back in grief. The collection is dedicated in part to Atwood's husband, Graham Gibson, who died in 2019. While Tiggs and Nell's lives bear the glaze of invented details, stories like Widows, a short piece that's simply a letter from Nell describing life after Tiggs' death, feel immensely personal. Widows is addressed to a friend who's much younger, although you don't think so now. But there's a subtle sense in quite a few of these stories that they're directed at a younger self someone flummoxed by and unprepared for the changes of later life, someone who can only liken widowhood to student aimlessness. Isn't it odd how aging turns out not to happen to old people, but to those who were so recently young? Given that the majority of her readership is younger than the 83-year-old author, the effect, even if unintended, of many stories here is that of wisdom from the advanced guard. These are missives not from a speculative future, but from one we're all headed for, if we're lucky enough to survive. It's a new kind of futurism from Atwood, calling back from just up the road, letting us know what lies in store. 
It's tempting to consider only Tig and Nell's seven stories as one complete collection, in part because the nine middle pieces are so disconnected from the rest, and in part because while that middle section contains some of the strongest and most original stories, it also contains the wobbliest. What a blast to relay their topics. A mother believes herself to be a witch. A snail's soul fuses with that of a customer service representative. Hypatia of Alexandria tells a modern audience about her murder via clamshell. An alien hired to entertain quarantined earthlings during a pandemic turns the legend of patient Griselda into an unintentionally, for the aliens, hilarious story of vengeance. The alien tells of a duke saddling up and riding to the rescue astride a snack. Why are you all laughing, he asks his audience. What do you think snacks do before they become snacks? A number of these middle stories refer to COVID, either as a fact of the world. In bad teeth, two women have tea in the backyard because at their age you have to be careful. Or a topic of conversation. In The Dead Interview, Atwood herself interrogates George Orwell through a psychic medium, and when he asks what she means by anti-vaxxers, she answers, it's complicated. In addition to the ambiguous plague that has led to quarantine in Impatient Griselda, there's the disease in free-for-all that is communicable through any sort of moist contact, including kissing and has forced humans into isolated groups where marriage is arranged. While it works as a story, this piece feels more like the prospectus of a novel that Atwood or one of her acolytes might one day develop, a world that deserves more than the ten pages it's allotted here. A few of these middle stories reach for the present moment in other ways. The characters in Airborne, a symposium, struggle with changes more in academia, I find triggering, triggering, one says, while also reminiscing about fights in recent decades over women with a Y. That particular story works beautifully in its bewildered juxtaposition of past and present feminism, but other pieces seem less committed to the project of examining the present world they invoke. The COVID invocations feel tacked on, and it's in their somewhat unconvincing attempts at timeliness that these middle stories miss as often as they hit. They don't feel carefully curated so much as collected from the disparate corners of Atwood's mind. On the other hand, who cares? Who on earth ever loved Margaret Atwood for her cautious restraint? She swings at all pitches, and sometimes she misses. Her 2015 novel, The Heart Goes Last, lost me at the Elvis sex bots, but good God, it was fun. I'd be more tempted to dwell on the puzzle of that grab bag of middle stories being sandwiched between realistic, virtuosic, elegiac-linked stories if the reasoning didn't so simply present itself. This is Atwood. This is our four-faced Janice, who's got one face turned to the past, one to the present, one to the future, and the fourth inside a spaceship telling stories about eating horses. Long may she reign. This review was written by Rebecca Mackay, whose latest novel is I Have Some Questions for You. She was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her 2018 book, The Great Believers. We could have been friends, my father and I, a Palestinian memoir.
by Raja Shahada. Titus, the artist's son, painted by Rembrandt in 1657, portrays both the literal subject and the self that the artist saw reflected in the boy's face. Raja Shahada's We Could Have Been Friends, My Father and I, is likewise a double portrait, a slim volume. It manages to weave together several threads, a biography of the writer's late father, Aziz Shahada, who was one of the most impressive Palestinian lawyers of his generation, a tender inquiry into why the two men were not closer, despite sharing a vocation and cause, and a moving lament for what might have been had they been afforded more time together. The book has two vantage points, past and present. In 1948, Aziz, a native of the Palestinian coastal city of Jaffa, was evicted by Israeli forces. Along with countless others, he lost his home and business and was rendered a refugee first in Ramallah and then Jordan. The rest of his career was devoted to resisting Israeli occupation and the Anglo-Jordanian control of Palestinians. He worked to implement a United Nations resolution for the return of Palestinian refugees and, in 1954, won a landmark case for the release of some of their assets. His independence of mind and foresight did not make him many friends, either in Israel or inside the Palestinian Liberation Organization. In London, he presented a memo to members of parliament concerning the torture of prisoners by the head of the Jordanian army, Sir John Bagot Glubb. For his advocacy for democracy in Jordan, he was sentenced for several months in the height of summer to a prison built by the British deep into the Jordanian desert. On December 2, 1985, Aziz Shadaha was assassinated in Ramallah. His son was abroad on a mission for the human rights organization Al-Haq. I rushed home like a madman, he writes, stricken, bewildered, irredeemably guilty. The circumstances remain vague, and the son continues to campaign for justice. Thirty-seven long years after the murder, he writes, I am still waiting to hear confirmation as to who murdered my father and why the Israeli police closed the file before the investigation was completed. Shortly before his death, Aziz Shahada had organized his archive, but because his son could not face going through it, the cabinet remained shut for three and a half decades, bringing Raja Shahada to nearly the same age his father was at the time of his death. When he finally opened it, he found a treasure trove of documents detailing major legal cases, published and unpublished articles, personal letters all filed with great care, as though hopeful and expectant of his attention. It is here that the book finds its tragically imperfect fulfillment of the wistful title. The painstaking diligence of his father's work is reciprocated by the son's unwavering attentiveness. It is a friendship of sorts. In his papers, Aziz Shahada, who in life rarely shared his feelings with his son, offers up his most intimate self, and although his son's modesty prevents him from taking too much overt pride in his father's bravery and accomplishments, there are moments when he cannot help feeling the admiration of a colleague. 
I remember the day when, several months after the occupation, we drove south of Jaffa to look for the land my father had bought before the Nakba, he writes. I remember how quiet and somber he was on the way. At first he seemed a bit confused about the exact location of the plot, but it didn't take long before he found it. It was vacant, as though awaiting his return. From the car he pointed it out to us. Then, without saying a word, he left the vehicle. The land lay on a promontory overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. He walked to it. He didn't invite us to go with him, nor did we think of joining him. We saw him stop, raise his head, and look at the sea. He didn't stay long, and when he returned, he was still wrapped in silence. In a book concerned with dispossession, the word theft is only employed twice. On both occasions, it is in relation to those who face a fate similar to those of the author's family. But here, Shahada is more focused on the evidence left behind than on the crime itself. In this sense, his father's papers shed light on both past and present. They are profoundly personal, as well as historically significant. Many years later, I have come to realize that the emotions I was experiencing as a result of Israel's transformation of our world must have been similar to those that my father had experienced after 1948, he says. And yet we never spoke about this, and nor did the similarities of our experiences bring us any closer together. The author refuses to get distracted by sentimentality or easy answers. He writes in a prose that is somber, spare, and matter-of-fact, like a man conscious of the scarcity of time and the risk of being interrupted. He is interested in peace not merely as an alternative to war, but as the seed of harmony and creativity. In his moral clarity and bearing of the heart, his self-questioning and insistence on focusing on the experience of the individual within the storms of nationalist myth and hubris, Shahada recalls writers such as Ghassan Kanafani and Primo Levi. In Shahada's books, there is always the emblematic object. In Strangers in the House, it is the stolen family home blinking at night over the hill. In Palestinian Walks, it is the ancestral landscape. Raja Shahada is a keen hiker, now scarred and interrupted by checkpoints and illegal settlements. In We Could Have Been Friends, My Father and I, it is his father's archive. With profound humanity, his work maps out the vicissitudes of a life lived in the shadows of Israeli occupation. The result is a quiet and deeply felt book that illustrates how being dispossessed and being occupied are not merely legal or political conditions, but perhaps more profoundly psychological and emotional ones, too. This review was written by Hisham Matar, whose book The Return won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Biography or Autobiography. Paris Requiem by Chris Lloyd Paris Requiem is Chris Lloyd's second book to feature Eddie Giral, a Parisian detective solving mysteries under Nazi occupation. It's September 1940, and Giral finds himself at odds with the regime he's supposed to answer to but can't condone. The disconnect happens when a man turns up dead who should have been in prison. The Gestapo, it seems, is releasing criminals before their sentences are complete. But why? Giral is as obsessed with that question as he is with the crime itself. 
but bureaucratic slow-walking, a ruthless assassin, and a shady drug dealer threatened to scuttle the investigation for good. Mysteries that explore individual murders at a time of mass casualties are hardly new, but Lloyd's version brims with mordancy. When a superior reminds Zeral to choose his battles wisely, the detective responds, I don't choose my battles, they tend to choose me, but I choose how I fight them. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Book Review. My name is Nora Ami. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.